This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. Hey folks, I have a couple of quick announcements as we kick off the new year here. I hope you'll help us fund our production costs for 2017 so I can keep providing you brand new podcasts twice a week. Show your support for the show by giving to our GoFundMe campaign at gofundme.com slash kickassnews or click on the donate button at kickassnews.com. Whatever you can give is always appreciated and will help us keep going over here in 2017. I also want to ask you to take a brief listener survey so we can better understand you, our audience, and find advertisers who are best matched to your interests. Just take five minutes to go to podsurvey.com slash kick and take the survey. And when you're done, be sure to register to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash kick. Thanks for listening, and now enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Ben Mathis, and welcome to Kick-Ass News. It's hard to believe, but as of this past December 30th, it's now been 10 years since the execution of Saddam Hussein by hanging. Considered to be one of the worst monsters of the 20th century, the brutal dictator was estimated to have been responsible for the murders of over a quarter million people, according to Human Rights Watch. But the truth is, we'll probably never know how many people were killed or simply made to disappear during the 25-year reign of Saddam Hussein. Just as much of a mystery was the man himself, and few people got such a thorough look into the dark soul of the Butcher of Baghdad as my guest today. John Nixon was a senior CIA analyst from 1998 to 2011 who had spent years studying the Iraqi dictator when in 2003 U.S. Special Forces finally caught up to him and Nixon was called in to positively identify Hussein. John Nixon then became the first man to conduct a prolonged interrogation of the dictator, stripping away the mythology surrounding an equally brutal and complex man, and gaining an unprecedented insight into the history and mind of America's most enigmatic enemy. John Nixon did several tours in Iraq and was recognized by a number of federal agencies for his contribution to the war effort. During his time with the CIA, Nixon regularly wrote for and briefed the most senior levels of the U.S. government. He also taught leadership analysis to the new generation of analysts coming into the CIA at the Sherman Kent School, the agency's in-house analytic training center. Today, he'll recall the surreal experience of debriefing one of the most notorious men of our time and why it didn't take much coaxing to get him to talk. He'll talk about Saddam's delusional view of the U.S.-Iraq relationship and why he thought 9-11 should have brought our two countries closer. He'll discuss Saddam's somewhat sadistic sense of humor, his personal heroes, and how he viewed fellow leaders in the Middle East, and his warnings about the rise of extremism and chaos in the region. Nixon will also talk about his own meetings in the Oval Office with President George W. Bush and what Bush wanted to know about Saddam. Plus, John Nixon will weigh in on the intelligence report alleging ties between Russia and President Donald Trump. Coming up with former CIA analyst John Nixon in just a moment.
I'm talking with John Nixon. He has a new book called Debriefing the President, The Interrogation of Saddam Hussein. Uh, Mr. Nixon, thanks for joining me over the phone. Uh, thank you for having me. I enjoyed the book. It certainly showed a side of Saddam that I hadn't seen before. Um, I'm curious, how did you end up getting this assignment to be the guy who identified and interrogated Saddam when we captured him? For years, I had studied Saddam Hussein uh, at CIA headquarters. Um, and I was a leadership analyst there, and I, that was my primary responsibility to sort of try to understand who he was and convey those impressions to policymakers. Uh, subsequently, I was asked to go out to Baghdad to serve as the HVT-1 analyst, uh, HVT-1 being Saddam's designation. Uh, it stands for High Value Target Number 1. Uh, I did that, and subsequently, the Special Forces captured him, and I was sent out that night to make sure that, in fact, they had indeed picked up Saddam Hussein. At the time, we thought that he had all these body doubles. Um, what did you look for, or what did you have to ask him to verify that this really was Saddam Hussein? Well, everybody seemed to think there were body doubles, and that was one of the most persistent myths about Saddam. In fact, today, even today, people still ask that question. Were there any? Um, there weren't any. What I needed to do was see if I could identify him through any sort of physical characteristics, and also I came up with a series of questions based on unclassified and classified information that I felt only he could answer. And uh, to be quite honest with you, um, I fulfilled the, the, that function, but the minute I saw him, I, it was really unnecessary because the minute I saw him, I knew it was him beyond a shadow of a doubt. What was it, just the way he carried himself or, or the way he looked? Just on appearance alone. You, you, you look really? at somebody for years on videotape and in pictures, and then all of a sudden one day they're sitting three feet away from you. And there's just you just become 100% certain. Uh, there was just simply not a shred of doubt in my mind that it was Saddam who was sitting there. Then there were these stories that he had all of these body doubles. Turned out that that wasn't true, huh? No, no. It, it was um, an urban myth that had grown up for many, many years. And to be quite honest, I think Saddam helped contribute to it uh, because it added a, a layer of mystery to himself and also kept his enemies off balance because mm -hmm. they could never really be sure who they might be targeting. I even asked him about this, and he just laughed. He said, of course there weren't any. You know, He made a kind of a joke out of it, though. At first he said, well, how do you know that I'm not the body double, and you know, you've got the wrong guy, and the real Saddam Hussein is out running around free. And then he laughed, and then he said, no, 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 there's, there's only one me. <laughs> and once you identified him, you weren't given too much time to actually conduct a proper interrogation. Uh, what was the rush from your superiors? Well, I think, I think catching Saddam alive caught people in Washington by surprise. They shouldn't have been because we had often told them that Saddam was a survivor and that he would be probably caught alive uh, if he wasn't initially killed by, by somebody in the, uh, in the takedown. Um, but we, we at the CIA, I mean, we're given the charge uh, of debriefing him until the FBI got out there to take over from us. And we were told to find out whatever we could to keep him talking so we were given a very short time. We never really knew how long we had with him. And I think largely um, Washington really had only one question uh, that it, it wanted answered, and that was where did he hide the weapons of mass destruction? Not did he have the weapons of mass destruction, but where did he hide them? 
And yeah. that was almost, uh, you know, as it turned out, that was a non-starter from the beginning. Yeah, and you said it wasn't hard to get him to talk. Apparently, Saddam Hussein was kind of a chatty Cathy, right? Uh, Saddam liked to talk, and he liked to talk about himself. He, he, in that sense, he, he was very much the narcissist that we, we believed him to be. <laughs> um, he could be very charming when he wanted to be, and he's very, very interesting and very disarming in that sense, because when I first met him, I, I was kind of bowled over. I mean, he was nothing like I thought he would be. Um, and yet, over time, as we moved through the debriefing process, we got to see another side of him as well, which was a nasty side and very arrogant and crude and uh, rude and kind and vicious. What subjects did he like to talk about? Well, he loved to talk about history. He liked to talk about anything that happened hundreds of years ago. <laughs> and he loved to talk about his role in, especially his role in Iraqi history, and to display his role in Iraqi politics and how he changed everything for the better. Talking to Saddam was sort of like reading a bad Washington memoir. He <laughs> sort of took credit for any of the good things that may have happened under his regime and never really accepted any blame for anything bad that happened. Anything bad that happened usually was somebody else's fault. And what were the topics that would get under his skin? Oh, God. Um, human rights abuse. Mm-hmm weapons of mass destruction and where they were, the Shia, uh, some of the things that had happened to the Shia under his, under his regime. Mm-hmm. Uh, those were the things that really, really kind of annoyed him and he, where he would really sort of get his back up and, and treat you as though, how dare you ask me about these questions? Yeah. You know, I am Saddam Hussein, president of Iraq. Who are you? <laughs> That's what he meant. A lot of times he would say. And you said that there was one particular moment when he really blew his top when you asked about his 1988 chemical attacks on Kurds in Halabja. Um, what was his reaction to that? Oh my God! He really he I had he he wouldn't answer questions about it. So I maneuvered. I started talking to him about the Revolutionary Command Council, which was the highest governing body in in Iraq, where all the decisions were made. And so I got him to a position where he said, yes, I was in charge of the RCC, and yes, uh, I, what I said, they listened to, and, and that's when I, brought back, when I went back to Halabja at that point. And he realized I had kind of backed him into a corner. We were now talking about this, and he couldn't get out of it. And so he just stared at me, and he was leaning forward and just looking at me, and he looked like he would get out of his chair and grab me by the neck. <laughs> and... Uh, you know, we, it, was a, it was kind of a frightening experience. It was just, he was like looking into the eyes of a wild animal. The thing about Saddam, and this is one of the most craziest things about him, is that I didn't believe him when he said that. I thought he was being evasive. But when I went back and I checked the record, and based on what others had told us, and from some of the captured documentation, I realized later that, that he was telling the truth. And this was, huh. this was a problem of, of talking to Saddam Hussein because he was so secretive that it created in his interlocutor a suspicion of that he was holding something back or that he was lying. or You just never felt like he was telling you the truth, even when he was telling you the truth. I wonder, do you think that that was perhaps one of his fatal flaws in that we thought that he had WMD because he was so cagey and you know, he would say that he didn't have weapons of mass destruction, but then he also wanted Iran to think that he did have weapons of mass destruction. Oh, yeah, I, you've hit the nail on the head there. Um, his secret was his strength, and it was also, yes, his fatal flaw, because it kept, it, it was a strength because it protected him at times, 
and kept people from being able to get at him or to un- to understand what he was up to. But on the other hand, when he really needed to come clean, when he really should have been able to kind of clear the slate and say, hey, okay, this is, this is the way it is, um, no one believed him. Hmm. And ultimately, when the Bush administration came in, uh, it was too late by that point. They, they weren't going to believe him no matter what. Yeah, and did you ask him why he wasn't more forthcoming about WMD? Yes, I did. Um, and he basically said, but I was. I've declared many times that we didn't have these weapons, that we didn't have these programs ongoing. But nobody listened. He just had this sort of feeling of, like, the world won't listen to me, and therefore, you know, the hell with it all. Um, he said that he did tell the international community that he didn't have these weapons and, and or weapons programs, and that one of the things that he was most concerned about in terms of the international inspection process was that not only were they looking for any sort of ongoing programs, but they were also delving into investigating his military apparatus, investigating his regime security, uh, that the 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 UNSCOM process, the the UN investigators that came to look for the weapons, were was infiltrated by um, hostile intelligence services, and that they were sharing, they were they were basically digging up information and then sharing it with his enemies. That's one of the reasons why he threw the weapons inspectors out. Now, in hindsight, he probably getting rid of the weapons inspectors probably was a bad thing because, again, it, it led. It created that air of suspicion, but I kind of believed Saddam when he said that he, you know, he had, and in hindsight, he had. One thing that's interesting is that you talked about how he seemed to be relatively unconcerned with the affairs of state and the business of governing. Apparently, he saw himself as mostly a writer. Yeah, um, in his later years. Yeah, he became rather disengaged from the day-to-day running. It just didn't interest him anymore, and I think he tired of it. And he wanted to spend more time doing other things, uh, yet still retain control of the government. And uh, yet he was very, um, you know, he was very interested in his in developing his writing skills and becoming a great writer. Uh, and. Uh, it, you know, it, one of the things that the at CIA, uh, in, in looking at Saddam Hussein and trying to sort of understand who he was and what was going on, that many of our sources of information had dried up because we were not permitted. We, we had no official presence in that country. And the picture that we had developed in the 1980s and the 1990s still continued to be the picture that we had of him. And yet there was there were one or two instances is where we would get this, we would get kind of reporting about him being disengaged, but we didn't believe it. And because the other picture that we had in our mind of this man who was the master manipulator and the person who was always thinking of ways to outfox us, we didn't, we didn't allow ourselves to maybe start thinking of alternatives, and we really should have. Um, and it was a you know, uh, failure of, of uh, I think, of some proportion. Um, in terms of our ability to analyze who who this man was, yeah, and I always think of you know Saddam Hussein in his speeches saying that we're the great Satan and that type of thing. 
But it was interesting when you talked with him about how he viewed relations with the U.S. Um, it sounded like he had a difficult time comprehending why the U.S. and Iraq weren't better allies, right? Yes, he, uh, you know, can kind of understand why he was confused by us. He was not a very well-educated man, and he didn't have, he never really traveled much. Mm-hmm. And Washington politics just really confused the hell out of him. And he thought that one of the things that was most interesting that we discussed was the reaction to 9-11. Yeah. And he thought that the United States had to see that Iraq didn't threaten them, threaten the United States, and Iraq had no, had no to play in the 9-11 attack. And he had completely misinterpreted the Bush administration's response to 9-11. Uh, the Bush administration immediately was looking for linkages to Saddam Hussein, and he, he was very much he, he was very much on their on their radar screen. It had been before, but now it was it was lethal. And uh, you know, to be honest, uh, Saddam kind of went through this period in the '80s where. You know, we had established relations, and we had an embassy, and he thought things were going well. And then around 1986, and the disclosures from Iran-Contra, I think, very much upset Saddam Hussein. And that's what sort of set this path of distrust and ultimately war, because Saddam Hussein saw the United States double-dealing on him and dealing with his Iranian enemies and giving his enemies weapons and also discussing this the Iranians one of their claims in dealing with the Americans was that they wanted help from the United States to overthrow Saddam Hussein. And uh, the, uh, the, I mean, the Iraqis were furious over this. And it's not, it's in, in the United States, nobody really cares. Like nobody even knows about this. Nobody, yeah. <laughs> it was sort of buried in the tower report commission, but in Iraq, it was Saddam Hussein took notice. Yeah. Yeah. I think that you said in here that two of the biggest things that would get a rise out of him were talk about Iran and talk about uh, Israel or Zionists, as he would call them. It's not like, like when we talked about human rights abuse, for example, mm-hmm. that got him riled up in a certain way that got him very indignant talking about Iran and talking about Israel. Um, got him riled up, but more in a, a way that he was, it wasn't sort of indignation. It was more of a, um, a, it would produce a long discourse on why Iraq was better than these countries, why Iraq wanted peace, and they're the countries that wanted war all the time. And it was more of a political uh, um, diatribe. Um, but yeah, when we talked about Iran, he really, really hated the Iranians. And he felt that you know, the Iranians, you just can't trust them, uh, and that they were, they want to lead the Islamic world, and that they they don't have that right, and they've never earned that right, and he was going to prevent that from happening. And he did have a very large Shia population, and when I would ask him about that, he saw these people not as Iraqis, but as Iranians. And that was one of the first times I encountered that that mentality. And then subsequently, I was in Iraq for for many years and talking to some Al-Qaeda and Iraq people that we had captured. And they felt the same. It's like, no, the Shia are Iranian. They're not they're not Iraqi. I think that he was somewhat prescient in that he was a Sunni, but he seemed to be more afraid of the Wahhabist Sunnis than of the Shias in Iraq. Yeah, yeah. You know, the Shia, he could Shia, he could understand and he could also isolate them. 
But when it came to the extremism that was emanating from Saudi Arabia and infiltrating itself into countries like Iraq, um, that was a different threat altogether because if allowed to take root, they could spread into among the tribes to his Sunni power base, mm-hmm. which would really then erode his, his power from within. But I think he, was, he thought that it was much more of a threat than, than the United States or Iran posed to his regime stability. One of the things wow. about Saddam was that even though he had become disengaged from governing, he still maintained a very strong interest in regime stability and his own personal security because he knew how important it was for his continuing uh, role as leader of the nation. We're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back with more with John Nixon when we come back in just a minute. So I was just talking with my mom about how she used to make these huge meals for the whole family every night. But now that it's just her and dad, it's way too much food and hassle for just two people. But then she told me she's been trying Blue Apron. They send complete, easy-to-prepare meals with fresh ingredients perfectly proportioned out for the recipe and the number of people, so there's no waste. Moms are picky about food, they know what's good, and she says their meals taste great. And here's the kicker. She swears they're so easy to make that even I can whip up a delicious home-cooked meal. So I'm excited that I just placed my very first order with Blue Apron. It's going to arrive right on my doorstep. In fact, they deliver to 99% of the continental U.S. And let me tell you some of the meals that I ordered for January, and I can't wait to cook these. Seared pork chops with farro and cranberry chutney. Spaghetti squash and marinara with mushroom and garlic knots. Spicy shrimp and Korean rice cakes with cabbage and furikake. I don't know what furikake is, but if it's from Blue Apron, I'm pretty sure it's going to be great. Their meals are fresh, delicious, and socially responsible. Their seafood is sustainably sourced. They use free-range chickens and natural pork and regenerative farming practices for their produce, which makes you feel even better about using Blue Apron. So check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash kick. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash kick. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. So it's a new year now, and there's no better time to launch an online business or expand your online presence for your existing business, and GoDaddy.com wants to help. GoDaddy's mission is to radically shift the global economy toward life-fulfilling independent ventures, helping their customers kick ass by giving them the tools, insights, and the people to transform their ideas and personal initiatives into success. GoDaddy is the world's largest technology provider dedicated to small business and the largest domain registrar with over 62 million domain names under management and big savings over other registrars. Their award-winning 24-7 support will help build your online business and give you everything you need to get up and running. Whether you have a new idea or an established business, the key to success online starts with a great domain name, and GoDaddy is trusted by 13 million customers. That's more than any other registrar. 
And right now, my listeners can get a special discount on a GoDaddy domain if you just use my offer code KICK30 at checkout to get 30% off new purchases. That's GoDaddy.com and offer code KICK30 for 30% off. You don't have to spend a fortune on a domain. Just go to GoDaddy.com and type in the offer code KICK30 at checkout for 30% off and launch your online business today. And now, back to the podcast. You said that at one point he said, quote, you're going to fail, meaning the U.S., you're going to fail, and you're going to find that Iraq is not so easy to govern. Did he seem to have an idea of what we're experiencing right now with ISIS and chaos in the region? Or was that just bluster? No, no, no. I mean, at the time, I didn't want to... I didn't want to... Uh, I didn't want to give him the benefit of, say, of saying I agree with him, but our understanding of Iraq and of the Arabs was was not very good. Was not we didn't have a lot in terms of our ability to sort of create something or help the Iraqis create something that could take place of his regime, and we made so many mistakes and alienated so many people early on. It was very clear by the time of his capture. It was very clear that the war was not going well. I think that a guy like Saddam Hussein could see that instantly, especially once he had been captured and, you know, just talking with some of the Americans already, I think he could sense that there was confusion and chaos. And certainly from sitting in his cell, he could, he could hear bombs going off. And that, that always told him that something was amiss. What was his opinion of his fellow leaders in the region? It's very interesting. We asked him who his favorite leaders were in history. Mm-hmm. And this was a topic that he really warmed to. He really liked it. And, of course, he named uh, Lenin de Gaulle, uh, George Washington. Um, but he never named any other, he never named any Arab leaders. And huh. I think that Saddam always had a very negative view of Arab neighbors, but he especially had a negative view of the, the next generation of Arab leaders, people like King Abdullah in Jordan and Bashar al-Assad in Syria. Um, he had dealt with their fathers and had, I think, a kind of a grudging respect for them. But the next generation, he had a very, very dim view of. And he himself, I think, was grooming his son, Kusei, to someday take over for him. Um, but uh, that was something that never really had a chance to take root. Yeah. Did he talk about his sons or his family much? Uh, we talked to him a good deal about about the family. And initially, um, he, he didn't want to talk about the women in his family. He, he would say, you know, we have a saying... The women are separate, and we just don't talk about them. And we said, Saddam, we, we have to. So we did. And it was the only time saw you know, any emotion was when he talk, was talking about his two daughters, Rana and Rakit. And uh, he just kind of choked up a little. And it was very, very interesting. Um, but his two sons, he said, uh, you know, he was very proud of them. And he... Uh, that they died like heroes when that exactly wasn't the, I mean, they died holed up in a sheikh's, uh, a sheikh's palace in Mosul. We, uh, we got to a point where we were talking about the sons and particularly about Uday, who was uh, uh, the older boy. And I think Uday had, had, had uh, disappointed his father a great deal. Um, Uday, one of the things that we, we didn't fully understand was the, the level of um, substance abuse that his son Uday was involved in and just, you know, being completely out of it, just on drugs and cocaine. 
and uh, and alcohol and uh, you know um, but Saddam never never uh, accepted any blame in terms of his parenting you know he just basically his attitude was well you can't you can't choose your family you, know? <laughs> you can't choose your sons you know you have them and then you, you deal with them in your interrogations with him were there ever any lighter moments with Saddam Hussein oh several times yes he had a sense of humor Every now and then he would make a sarcastic remark about somebody or he would, uh, one time we were talking about uh, this long discussion of his son-in-law, Hussein Kamel, who had was the former minister of defense, and then he had defected with his brother and Saddam's two daughters in 1995. They went to Jordan. They lived there for about six months and then came back and were killed by the regime. And he was telling us all about uh, his various business enterprises and his corruption and, and what have you. And uh, then I said, sounds like a bad guy. And Saddam said, well, now you know why he is where he is. And <laughs> there were also some anecdotes where he would talk about, um, uh, he would tell funny stories. And, and one of the things that one of the, the, the things that all the stories had in common was they always ended up with somebody having harm inflicted upon them and with Saddam being the sort of person pulling the string. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, he, and he laughed. He would just, he would break up uncontrollable laughing, um, kind of eerie to hear. Yeah, and wasn't there a moment where I guess he called you stupid or ignorant, and your polygrapher Bruce, who was working with you, had a pretty good comeback to that? What did he say? I was trying to kind of get at this, uh, talk about his intelligence community, and I made up a storyline, and he just looked at me and he said, "Well, I can tell, I can tell that your intelligence is not very high." And then my, that's when my colleague Bruce stepped in and he said, "Oh, uh, you, you mean he's of low intelligence?" You mean low intelligence like like taking your, your Air Force and moving it to your neighbor, Ron, that you hate and that you just fought an eight-year war with, and then expecting it to get, to get it back? Uh, <laughs> you mean intelligence like that? And Saddam just, he looked at him for a second with, you know, undisguised scorn, and then he just started laughing. And then he just, uh, he held up his finger and he just, he, he just said, no, touche, meaning, you know, okay, you guys got me there. Wow. Well, I wonder, was there any part of him throughout your conversation that seemed to think that if he could just put his actions in the right context or explain things, he might be able to talk his way out of punishment and and maybe, who knows, maybe even be restored back to power if we just understood? He was always looking for some opportunity, some opening that would give him a chance to sort of insert some sense of, I can work with you. Don't, don't, you know, I don't need to be executed. I don't need to be tried. I don't know. You know, we can come to some sort of an agreement, especially after I left. Um, he, he would do that with my, my successor. Uh, and he didn't think he was going to get anywhere with me because I talked too I talked too much about human rights abuse and asked him too many questions about that. And my, my successor didn't, you know, wasn't really focused on that. He was focusing more on, on, on WMD and, and that stuff. Um, but the minds of the Bush administration were made up, yeah. and certainly once an Iraqi government was established with a Shia sort of in control of the government, um, uh, there was simply never going to be any, any possibility of anything but uh, a guilty verdict and execution. What was your last meeting with Saddam Hussein like? Uh, it, was, it, was, uh, it was a short one. Um, it was mostly done to introduce the uh, the person who's going to be taking over from me because I had to go back to the, to the United States. I we stood up and I said goodbye to him, 
And for the first time, I held out my hand first. You know, we, uh, we had always made a point of not shaking his hand unless he put his hand out first. And this time I put my hand out first. And right before I did that, I, I told him, I said, I'm sorry that we met under these circumstances. And, uh, but I just I thanked him for participating in this dialogue that I had learned a great deal about him and his country because of it. And I thanked him again for that. And then he stood up and then he kind of embraced me, he just sort of grabbed my, he shook my hand and then he grabbed my arm with his other hand and then he wouldn't let go. And he was telling me all these things like, you, you must remember to be just and fair uh, because these are the two most noble qualities of anybody. And he went on for about five minutes and it was I, I don't know if you've ever been in a circumstance when someone sort of grabs your hand and is shaking it and then won't let go. Yeah. Uh, it gets to be a little <laughs> uncomfortable. And, and, and this was even more so. It was kind of a surreal moment, but, you know, it was, uh, and when, when he finally got done and let go and then left the room, we all kind of looked at each other and like, oh my God, what the hell was that all about? <laughs> uh, after that, you were assigned to be an analyst uh, covering Muqtada al-Sadr. And during that period, you had several meetings with yeah. George W. Bush and Dick Cheney in the Oval Office. Uh, what did Bush want to know about Saddam? Bush was very interested in hearing about this. Uh, he wanted to know what kind of man he was. Um, he wanted to know, did he know that he was going to be executed? He had a couple of, a couple of other questions. It was really kind of weird. He basically he wanted sort of me to reaffirm what he already believed. It was kind of weird. Um, at the very end of my talk, he, you know, I was walking out and he said to me, the president said to me, he said, you know, hey, he didn't, he didn't, he didn't mention where any of those uh, vials of anthrax were. You know, it's a <laughs> joke. And I, you know, I just kind of said, no, no, sir, you know, if, if he had, you would have been the first to know. Yeah. Um, but I thought it was very inappropriate because, you know, we had already had thousands of men, women killed. And, you know, this was just a war that was not going well. And I didn't think that was a, the time for humor. Um, but, uh, you know, one of the things that was also kind of disturbing about this entire process was that in talking, I realized that Al-Sadr had now become the new boogeyman uh -huh. uh, in Iraq for the Bush White House. And when I tried to kind of tell the Bush, Bush and, and his national security team uh, about Sadr, they sort of dismissed what I was saying in the same way they had dismissed what we had said about Saddam Hussein. And it just showed me that they hadn't really learned anything from this entire fiasco. Do you think that Muqtada al-Sadr might have been an uncomfortable ally, but a useful ally against ISIS? Well, I think um, Muqtada al-Sadr potentially um, could become a useful, I wouldn't call it an ally. He never wanted to move close to the United States and had also found it very useful for his own political platform to, to become an enemy of the United States. We kind of helped make him who he was. But I think ultimately, uh, if he ever truly gets his act together, Sadr is still a force in Iraqi politics, but he, he hasn't yet emerged into the full-blown potential that he could he could have. But um, I think that he could be a very, very uh, useful person to have in Iraq in terms of trying to blunt the role of Iranian influence in that country. Mm -hmm. Very much anti-Iranian. Despite the fact that you know he he went to Iran, he fled to Iran in 2007 during the surge. He, he was never really comfortable there. And his father, who Muqtada seems to want to emulate in every facet of his being, was very anti-Iranian. So I think that he could be useful in in those two realms. And let me make one more other point. Yeah. Sadr has some potential in the sense that he does seek to be 
a national leader, and he does, and he has made attempts to, of outreach to the Sunni community, but they're marred by the abuses that his followers carried out against the Sunnis, especially during the, the time of 2005-2006. So that's, that's a big question mark. But as far as ISIS goes, you know, I think the place to start might be in Syria and stopping the Syrian war, the civil war there, and B, taking those areas in Iraq uh, and providing security and stability uh, to the people of the regions where ISIS sprung up. And that's a tall order because it's going to require the Shia-led government in Baghdad having to do something for the Sunni community. And so long as there is this Sunni-Shia divide in Iraq, um, and, and that so long as Iran leans on Baghdad to ensure that the Sunni community doesn't rise up, you'll, you will always have the circumstances that, that feeds this Sunni disenfranchisement and the Sunni sense that they are being turned into second-class citizens and that they have no alternative but to turn to a group like ISIS. Before we go, while we're on the topic of more recent events, I'd love to hear your take on the 35-page report about ties between Russia and Donald Trump. Even though this is not specifically your region of specialty, what did your gut tell you when you heard that? Did you read the report? Did it have the whiff of authenticity? I read a, a, a short section in the New York Times that was about eight pages uh, that had been released uh, on, and it mostly talked about uh, RT, the network, the Russian network RT, mm-hmm. which I think stands for Russia Today, and its role is sort of a mouthpiece for for uh, the government. Um, I think that this is this is getting a very dicey area uh, because <laughs> uh, you know Donald Trump has a. Um, has every right to be angry with the intelligence community in the way, not so much the, the analysts in the trenches. Uh, and I don't think Trump is, has been you know, targeting those in, with his words, but certainly at the more senior levels of the agency. I, I have not seen the full report. I, I don't know anyone who has, and, or the, this person, this, this Brit, who put it together. Um, it just seems to have a lot of unverified sourcing to mm-hmm. it. And, you know, that's, that's something that if, if indeed it, there is an issue, and it needs to be brought to the, the understanding of the president. It should be done. It should be done so, and not kicked around in the media. The football meant to embarrass anybody, and, and that's exactly what has happened. You know, John Brennan has been a very um, political director, and he's been Barack Obama's almost national security mentor for many years. I, I just, I, I think that this has been really a very sor- sorry and sordid affair, mm-hmm. um, because it has created this sense that there is a divide between the president and his intelligence community. And that is a very, very, very dangerous game to be playing. Only our enemies are going to benefit from that. And they'll try to widen that breach. Yeah. The president really needs to have an intelligence community. We can't go back to the day of, days of the president being his own spy master. It's impossible. Yeah. And, and, and the agency, the CIA, needs to have the support of the president. Well, do you have any thoughts on the new CIA director? I've heard a lot of good things about Mike Pompeo. And I'm, I'm kind of optimistic that this can happen. One of the good things that I heard is that he wants to sort of restore um, uh, some of the traditional uh, elements of what the agency has done well, analytic tradecraft, and, and, and producing analysis for the president. And I'm hoping that, that's, that that is the case. Yeah, and I think one thing that you say in the book is that we need more human intelligence on the ground in these places, right? Oh, absolutely. One of the central uh, lessons, I believe, from the, the Iraq War is that not having an embassy, not having an official presence in a country does you no good because 
if you have an official presence, you, you have an ability to have a dialogue with the host government, an ability to talk to people on the street. You know, see the politicians in Washington always like to play this game of, oh, well, we're not, we're too, we're too good and we're not going to recognize this regime because we don't like it and we don't agree with it. And yet they don't understand by taking that sort of political high horse, they are limiting their options and, and limiting their ability to control events and, you know, making the, the possibility of a conflict greater. Yeah. And that's why I think like isolating countries like North Korea and Iran, mm-hmm. so it's time that those things end because you empower the hardliners in those countries who say, look, look at the United States. Look, they, they want to destroy us. That's why we have to keep even tighter control over every aspect of society here. And you only empower the hardliners that way. Well, the book, again, is called Debriefing the President, The Interrogation of Saddam Hussein. John Nixon, thanks so much for talking with me. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks again to John Nixon for coming on the podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, then you can order his book, Debriefing the President, The Interrogation of Saddam Hussein on Amazon. Or you can download the audio version of his book for free through a special trial offer just for our listeners at audibletrial.com slash kickassnews. Don't forget to take our listener survey so we can keep the show free and find advertisers who are best matched to you, our listeners. Just take five minutes to go to podsurvey.com slash kick and take the survey. And when you're done, be sure to register for that $100 Amazon gift card giveaway. Be sure to subscribe to Kick-Ass News on iTunes and leave us a review while you're there. You can like Kick-Ass News on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at at KAPolitics. And please be sure to recommend Kick-Ass News to your friends on your social media. And if you really want to help out, then donate to our GoFundMe campaign at GoFundMe.com slash KickAssNews or click on the donate button at KickAssNews.com. As always, I welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions at comments at kickassnews.com. For now, though, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kickass News. Kick-Ass News is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.